knowing that you are here. You've inhabited this place. You have dwelled in it. We come to worship you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat real quick. Somebody must think I'm tall. Hey, welcome. Good morning. Um, how many of you know what a 45 is? Yeah, most of you just reached for your hip. A 45 was what we used to call a record. It was a recording of something. There was always a flip side. They called that the B side. Guess what you get today? You get the B side. Because Pastor Michael wanted a day off. No. He calls me up. He says, hey, you're going to preach. I said, no. He said, oh, yeah. He said, you're going to preach. And uh, I said, what on it? And he said, righteousness. And I'm like, ha, 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 ha. Oh. So the disclaimer up front, righteousness is something we are all working toward. Don't ever let a preacher, don't certainly ever let a music guy stand in front of you and say, hey, we've got this wired, because no, not at all. Not at all. And that's why we like to think of ourselves as just ordinary people. Bring an ordinary faith to church. We don't have to have this wired. Progress starts with this two words that Jesus threw out to his disciples over and over. Follow me. Follow me. So we're going to jump right in today to a story that Matthew recorded for us about Jesus coming to be baptized. It says this. In those days, John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. People from Jerusalem and all over Judea and the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John, and when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. John... Is Jesus' cousin. They've known each other since they were knee-high. But John tried to talk him out of it. He says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, so why are you coming to me? But Jesus says it should be done. It needs to be done, for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptism. Now, carried out all that God requires is how the New Living Translation says it, an equally good translation of those same words from the NIV, the New International Version, is do this to fulfill all righteousness. Righteousness is our key word today. It's a big churchy word. It's a word that gets in your face and that we don't have to like to appreciate. Because we all want the people around us to be righteous. We all want our waves to be... Oh, no, no, no. That was... Growing up near Huntington Beach, everybody wanted a righteous wave to surf. <laughs> we all want the people around us to be righteous, but Jesus calls us to righteousness, and that's our key word today. So we're going to dig into that. We've been talking over the last few weeks about stepping into baptism. That's been the theme of this message series, Step Into Baptism. Today, we've looked at a story where John refused initially to baptize Jesus. Why is that? Because baptism symbolizes death to our old self. It symbolizes being raised up to new life, righteous 
life. Now, baptism isn't what forgives sins. What, what we believe is the baptism is uh, simply a symbol of what you've already done. Forgiveness of sins is what happens when you forgive, uh, when you confess that we're sinners and ask God for forgiveness. That takes care of that. Baptism's just an outward sign. It's the symbol of the act. John already knew Jesus. He knew that Jesus was sinless, did not need to be forgiven. So he refused. And Jesus insisted. Why? Why does the Son of God need to be baptized? So that they would carry out all that God requires to fulfill all, all righteousness. Not just bits and pieces. If you've been in church for any length of time, if you've grown up in church, especially if you've grown up in church, you've learned about, yeah, good enough. Bits and pieces. <clears throat> coming, to, coming to terms with being righteous and holy, okay, maybe, someday, when we're 80 and we've got nothing else to do. Ask any 80-year-old, they'll tell you that's not how this works. So why did Jesus want to be baptized? Why did he insist? To fulfill everything that God requires, to fulfill all righteousness, for God's plan to be perfectly fulfilled, completely fulfilled, Jesus needed to be baptized specifically by John. Okay? Hold that thought for a moment. Not only did this model obedience, it also showed that John's standard of righteousness, what he was talking about, was right on the money. Jesus came to John, and it, it basically uh, put his seal of approval on everything that John was doing. It also represented the sinless Son of God identifying with the sinful people, me and you, that he came to save. There was a sense that this was a foretelling of his death and resurrection. When we baptize people, we say buried in Christ and raised to new life. That's the mode of baptism that we use. We dunk them. You can be sprinkled by playing with squirt guns. We, that's just the way we do it. Uh, thank you. Two other times in, in, in the Bible, Jesus actually talked about baptism, and both of them referred to his death. Okay? Finally, this was a sort of the passing of the baton from John to Jesus. Over and over, John said, Hey, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God, but somebody is coming soon who's greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not worthy even to be a slave or carry his sandals. This was a passing of the baton. Jesus showed up and, and John said, behold, which is Bible for, hey, look, that's the guy, the lamb of the world, uh, the lamb of God that's come to, to rescue the world. <clears throat> Jesus had come, and when he baptized Jesus, John passed the baton to Jesus. The other reason that Jesus wanted to be baptized, we talked about that as an example, so we can play follow the leader. Anyone ever played follow the leader? Super simple game. Works really great for small handfuls of people because if you get a dozen or more, you can't see what the guy's doing anyway and you're following the not leader. And all it is is you do what they do. If you don't do what they do, you fall out and you're out. The last person standing, hey, they take over. Now they're the leader. Follow the leader. We've all seen it, played it. Um, when I was teaching school, Follow the leader wouldn't really work in a room with 20-plus kids. 
But a lot of times, we would play something similar called Simon Says. You ever played Simon Says? We used to, tell you what, let's play Simon Says this morning. Let's start. If you want to play Simon Says, sit, stand up right where you're standing. If you don't want to play Simon Says, stay seated. But if you want to play, oh, I already said let's start. That means you're all out. Because I didn't say Simon Says, right? No, 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 no. Okay. If you would like to play, let's do it this way. If you would like to play, stand up, and we will then start. Real quick. Oh, he plays there. If you would like to play, stand up. We have not started yet. If you would like to play, stand up. Simon Says. All right. Simon Says. We're going to start now. Ready? We're starting now. Now we start. Simon says, raise your right hand. Simon says, raise your left foot. Simon says, raise your right foot. Simon says, put your left foot down. I know, I play dirty. Hey, actually, before you sit down, before you sit down, raise one foot, either any foot. No, Simon says, we're done, Simon says. Raise a foot, no, Simon says, okay? Or consider raising your foot. Go ahead and grab a seat. Check this out. When you raise a foot, you're poised to do something. When you raise a foot, you're poised to take a step forward. Or you're poised to take a step back. Or you're in a position just to put your foot down and stay right where you're at. Faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. Faith and doubt. Not one or the other. Faith and doubt work that way. Faith can be a, 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 a process of taking a step forward into something. You find something that you're willing to step into, like step into baptism. That's what we've been talking about. Faith can also be, mind you, taking a step back. Sometimes you need to take a step back just to see what's in front of you and reconsider and give it a good, honest look. Did I ever turn this on? I didn't. Let's see. Sorry, barbers. Doubt can be taken a step back. Whoa, we're not ready for that yet. Doubt can also be taken a step forward. I'm not there yet. However, I'm going to step into step forward. They can, having your foot poised can also be, okay, I'm not ready yet. I'm just going to stay where I'm at. And I'm going to continue right where I'm at. You know, Jesus accepts that, too. I should catch up with my notes. You might step forward into something new. You might step back to get a a better look. Stepping forward might represent a new decision. Stepping backwards might represent confusion and hurt. And if we're going to be honest in church, yeah, I know, nobody likes being honest, especially in church. If we're going to be honest in church, we got to be real with who we are. Confusion, hurt, doubt, faith, it's all a mixed bag. Faith and doubt are descriptive terms. That's all. It's just a description. They describe thoughts and actions and feelings. They aren't religious terms. They're just terms. They also work together. You can have faith and doubt at the same time. You know what that's called? Ordinary. Normal. Faith and doubt together. 
it's ordinary for faith and doubt to coexist. For example, Friday, along with several other people from church, um, I helped load a moving truck so the Kerry Cobb could pack up and move all of his stuff to Iowa. His wife got a job. It's her dream job. He let me know yesterday about 5.30 they arrived. At the beginning of last week, I sent out an email to ask for help. I sent it out to, I don't know, 30 people. And a few people responded and said they'd be here. And a couple people responded and said, yeah, we'll see. I doubted when I sent that email that anybody would respond. But Tucker and Peyton and Bruce and Kelly and Dayton and Chance and Austin, they all said, hey, we'll be there. And they were. When they responded and told me they'd be there, I had faith that they'd show up. But when I got there in the morning and Carrie sent me back to where I'd just come from to pick up the burritos, there were only a couple of people there. And then when we got there and we saw everything that Carrie had in mind to load on this one tiny little truck, we all had doubt. But having done this more than a few times, I had faith that we could kind of fit it in. And just because I was convinced didn't mean that everybody else was all of a sudden doubtless. They still had their doubts, but the closer we got and the more we got <clears throat> shoehorned into, no, the more we got stacked properly and nicely so his wife wouldn't be terribly disturbed when she saw the truck roll up, the more that faith began to build. And faith building is how this works. You don't go from zero to hero in a moment and all of a sudden, hey, you're a righteous man, woman of faith. Faith builds. In the end, everything got in the truck, but there were moments of faith and doubt every step of the way. Does that make sense? Steps forward, steps back, moments where we just feet our, put, put our feet into place and stood there saying, this is not going <clears> to... <throat> That's called ordinary faith. Ordinary... Hey, that would be a... No, it'd never work. <laughs> and yes, for all you analyticals out there, you could actually take a sidestep and, well, we would call that dodging something. We'll actually come back to sidestepping. Today our message is step into righteousness. Righteousness is a big word. You don't go from zero to hero and all of a sudden you're one thing and then you're another. It's a process. It takes time. It builds. So today the goal is to lay out a framework for righteousness that makes sense, that's understandable, that's memorable, that takes all the guesswork out. How do we get to righteousness? Well, just do everything. No, 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 no. Why was Jesus baptized? To carry out all that God requires to fulfill all righteousness. It was just a step. And to model what he did so that we could play follow the leader. What does that even mean, follow the leader? Jesus wasn't sent to earth by God the Father to bring us a new version of something or to update something that already existed. Hang on. This could rock your faith. Jesus wasn't sent to earth by God the Father to bring us a new version of anything or to update something that already existed. Jesus stepped into history to introduce something entirely new. They called it good news. 
So we need to do, learn how to do something that's entirely new if we're going to follow Jesus the way he said, follow me. Does that make sense? It wasn't an additional chapter to the story of Israel. It wasn't a new version of Judaism. It wasn't to start a regional or national movement or to continue one that was already going. Jesus came to establish a new covenant, a new movement, and a new commandment. Three things, a new covenant, a new movement, a new commandment. His new covenant would fulfill and replace the behavior systems and the whole sacrifice, sacrificial system that had existed not just in Judaism, but in religions all around the world. His new movement would be international without regard to nations or borders or people groups. His new command would serve as the moral standard, the moral standard, command, the moral standard for his followers, for his movement. So it was a pretty big deal, yeah. Just so we're on the same page, let's talk through those real quick. His new covenant is also called the eternal covenant in the book of Hebrews, or the covenant of grace. It fulfilled God's covenant with Abraham. It, it completed everything. God's covenant with Abraham. And it superseded God's covenant with Israel and the law of Moses. Scripture says those were temporary in duration. In it, God promised, one, no longer hold our sins against us. Two, give us a new heart. Three, write his commands on that new heart. And four, to place his spirit within us. It's all one-sided. That kind of a covenant, that kind of a treaty, that kind of, it's called a promissory treaty, a promissory covenant. It means one guy makes the promises and everyone else benefits. Um, in some places of the world, they call that a royal grant covenant, where the king says, here's what you get. There's nothing on you that's required. Moses, the covenant that God made with Moses said, if you do this, I'll do this. That's different. Sutran Treaty. This was all one-sided, unilateral. God saying, hey, I'm going to bring this to the table. And the only thing you lose if you don't want to play by these rules is you, you just lose the promises. It doesn't cost you anything. You just lose the promises. His new movement is what we call the church. Now, this was a big deal in the day. We don't see it that way so much because this is what we're used to. Jesus called it the ecclesia or the assembly is, is how might be a better translation. But through some fun times with German, we wound up with church. Um, it means the church isn't a building but a people. Oh, it's not a place that's holy. It's not a place that's sacred. It's a people that's sacred. That's why we can meet in a senior center or a garage or a living room or any, and ordinary faith's done all of those. That's why we can meet anywhere. And when we gather, God says, I'll be there in the middle of you because it's the people that are holy, not the place. His new singular command would replace more than 600 commandments. Why do you think your Bible's so big? More than 600 commandments of the Mosaic law that we were required by the law of Moses. How did we get there? How did we get to the point where we're down to one from 613? How do we get 
there. Matthew records the first part of that for us. And the first part of that is this. An expert in religious law tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, what's the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Well, if you're going to trap Jesus, maybe that's a good one. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And right on the heels of that, he said, a second is like it. Not second in importance, just second in sequence. Does that make sense? You've got more than one kids. One came first, the other came next. It's not that you are going to tell anyone that you love one more than the other. It's that they came in sequence. They're just as important. The second one's like it. Equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the, pro- all of the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. First century Jews referred to their scriptures as the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets, okay? So he is saying that every one of your scriptures, every one of those 600 plus commands can be summarized this way. Love God, love your neighbor. This is the first time in recorded history that these two commands were combined. That's kind of interesting. One of them came from Deuteronomy. After giving the Ten Commandments, uh, and it's recorded in chapter 6, Moses said, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today, for we will be counted as righteous when we obey all, all the commands that our Lord God has given us. In Leviticus 19, and mind you, the ten, the ten commandments, we all know, the ten commandments, right, we can't say them all. The ten commandments, we just know them as the ten commandments. Those were just the first set. Every time you turn around in the Old Testament, there's more. But wait! In Leviticus, it said this. So this is the next, right, completely different book. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Oh, you must obey all my decrees. He didn't negate, he didn't forget that part. All, all, all. According to Jesus, these two commandments, when Jesus first put them together, summarized every conceivable application, everything you could possibly come up with for the entire law. Right? These are the Cliff Notes version. Anyone? College? Cliff's Notes? So according to Jesus, we would be counted as righteous under the law of Moses when we commit wholeheartedly to loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. Ho, 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 ho. Wait, wait, wait. So we just went from 613 to 2. According to Jesus, we would be counted as righteous, righteous, there's our key word, under the law if we could commit wholeheartedly to loving the Lord and loving our neighbor. So at least it simplifies things, but there was one more step that Jesus actually took to tweak that into place, those two commandments. To redefine the requirements for righteousness under Moses' law. This is Luke 10. One day another expert, another expert, a different guy, different place, different situation. Same song, second verse. A little bit louder, a little bit worse. Came up and he wanted to test Jesus. 
by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, Well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Obviously, he'd been paying attention to the first guy. You must love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, said Jesus. Thanks for paying attention. Do this, you'll live forever, eternal life. There you go. Boom. The man wanted to justify his actions. So he asked Jesus, so who's my neighbor? Why? Right? Why, why would you go up against it? Right? It's like a kid saying, well, I know this. And the parents saying, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a kid pretending that their parents never see them do something. And, and we knew it was coming before it ever hit the ground. The man wanted to justify himself. We all do this. It's almost like humans are hardwired to want to justify me. We want to know exactly where the lines are so we can get right up to them. Right up to them. Not cross them. I mean, eternal life's a big deal. Not cross them, cross them. But we, we certainly don't want to miss out on anything. Right? Or was it only me that went to college? We don't, right? There's nothing we want... So we, we sidle up right where the line. We define it. We want to know exactly where. We want to know. That way we can bend the lines and split the hairs and loop the holes and argue the ambiguities. Because we like that sort of stuff. We like to justify ourselves. And that way we can sidestep our way back into righteousness. Oh, there it is. Sidesteps. Like any good Pharisee, oh. or lawyer, lawyer, let's stick with lawyer. Besides, everyone knew who their neighbor was. This is Jewish law, too. This is, we, in fact, we just read it. Leviticus 19.18 says this. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. Right there, a fellow Israelite. That's our neighbor. Same verse. That's easy. Because a Jew's neighbor is a Jew's people. A Jew's neighbor is a Jew's family. A Jew's neighbor is just other Jews. For a Jew to love another Jew as they love themselves, that makes sense. We are We're all descendants of Abraham. But that isn't what Jesus came to earth for. Remember what John told us? You know this first, John 3.16. God loved the world. Oh, I'm sorry. For God loved the Jews so much that he gave his one and only Jew, son so that every Jew who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. No, we wouldn't be here. God loved the world so much that he gave his only son that whoever, whoever, wherever you're at, wherever you're coming from, whomever, if, We've got any English teachers in the room. Would not perish but have eternal life. So Jesus altered the rules and redefined the terms with this story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. He saw the man. And when he did, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A Levite, or a temple assistant... Walked over and looked at him lying there. Is it just me or do you imagine him going, ooh? 
and then crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by as well. Then a despised Samaritan came along. Wait, what? The hero's a Samaritan? Okay, for your sake, think of the worst person or the worst type of person. And let's just use a strong word that you hate or despise. Got him pictured? No, really, really, really. Picture someone. Picture a people group. Picture an ethnicity. Picture a gender that you despise. When they saw the man, they felt compassion for him. So going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him up. Then he put his man, that man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. Wait for it. The next day, that means he spent the night taking care of this guy. Is that ridiculous or what? This is the person you hate the most, just took care of you all night long, made sure you made it through. The next day, he handed an innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, hey, take care of this guy. If his bill gets higher than this, when I come back through, I'll pay you the difference. Jesus asked, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? The lawyer replied, he couldn't say Samaritan. He couldn't say whomever. He just said the one who helped him. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, yeah, go and do the same. Go and be like that person. Oh, that's heavy. Not just heavy, outlandish, ridiculous. Over the top, off the chain, unbelievable. I guarantee you no one was sitting in the crowd saying, oh, good start. No, 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 they were all grumpy now. Because they'd all been called out. Because there's always someone that we don't like. No Samaritan in that day would show that level of concern for a Jew. No Jew would do anything for a Samaritan. These groups didn't speak to each other. They didn't touch one. They certainly didn't touch each other. Bandage a wound? No. That's not how things were done. And in this story, Jesus redefines the term neighbor. The whole idea of neighbor. We've heard this our whole lives, so we don't, it, it, it doesn't hit us in the same way that it would have hit someone else in the first century. Jewish culture, which also means that when he said, go and do the same, he redefined the entire paradigm for what counts as righteousness. Redefined the entire paradigm for what counts as righteousness. Loving a neighbor now? No boundaries. Loving a neighbor now? was evidence of how you loved God. To recap, this is where we're at. We're laying out this framework for righteousness, one that's understandable, one that's memorable, and that takes the guesswork out. Okay, so we're going to put that together. Understanding that keeping 600 plus commandments of Moses' law would be impossible, and it was, it was for everyone, even the people that were there with their little book and checklist saying, huh, you're naughty. 
Jesus stepped into history to establish a new covenant, a new movement, a new command. The new covenant, new covenant was this one-sided covenant of grace that we still enjoy today. All the obligations on God's side of the equation. The new movement, that's us. That's the church. That's, that's the people. Not a building, not a place. That's just us when we gather. A new movement. We're heading into the new command. That's what's next. And this is what we've seen Jesus setting up by redefining, by distilling everything into two commands and by redefining the term neighbor, okay? So it's the night before Jesus is crucified, and he's throwing a dinner party in the upper room, and there's this really long table, and everybody's seated on the same side. Leonardo da Vinci, right? Mona Lisa, same guy. Helicopter, same guy. It's at the Last Supper that Jesus gave his disciples this new commandment that he redefined everything. John 13, verses 34 and 35. John records this. He says this. Now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as as I've loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Not that you're a Christian. Christian's kind of not well-defined in Scripture. Disciple, that's a hard-edged word. That's got square corners. That'll cut both ways. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Like I've loved you. Like I've loved you, you should love each other. Love each other. That's what's going to prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know what's interesting? When Jesus issued the command, he didn't play the God card. He didn't say, because I'm the Messiah, you should love each other. He didn't say, because I am holy, you should love each other. He didn't even say, because I have all authority under heaven and earth, go and love one another. He said, love each other as I've loved you. He leveraged himself. This is what I have done. Do that the same way. Imagine if you were one of the disciples sitting there. Well, Okay, according to the story, they weren't even paying attention. Peter's like, so where are you going? And where's Judas? (laughs) But imagine seeing, hearing Jesus say, well, love people as I've loved you. And and Matthew's sitting there saying, well, I was the worst of the worst. Everybody hated me. Reviled, not even a good enough word. Hated, reviled. What's, What's worse than reviled? Imagine Peter saying, I was such an idiot. Imagine Steve saying, oh, that's going to be a lot harder than just keeping a few commandments. Jesus leveraged his example. Love one another as I've loved you. This new commandment would become the moral standard for everyone in his movement. It's simple, but it covers everything. It's much less complicated than the law of Moses, but it's much more demanding. There's no loopholes, no lines to bend, no hairs to split, no ambiguities to argue, no sidesteps 
to take so that you can dodge your way into righteousness. In fact, all the commentaries about things to do in the New Testament are just descriptions of this law, this command. It's just expanding this and, and identifying, it's just applying this New Covenant command. For example, and we're going to read through really quick, a part of 1 John, uh, the, the Apostle John, Matthew, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that John, Revelation, that John, he wrote three letters. First one says this, some different scriptures. Anyone who says they belong to Christ should live the same life as Christ. The same kind of life that he lived. I'm not writing anything new here. This is the oldest commandment in the book. You've known this from day one. Yet it's always new. And it works for you just as it did for Christ. As we obey his commandment to love one another, the darkness in our lives disappears and the new light of life in Christ shines in. Little children, let's just stop saying that we love people. Let's really love them and show them by our actions. This is what God says we should do. Believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Since we know that Christ is righteous, we also know that all who do what is right are God's children. This is faith expressing itself through love. What kind of love? Love one another as I have loved you. The basis for Christian behavior is the sacrificial love of Jesus. We don't love because the Bible tells us to love. Oh, catch that. We don't love because the Bible tells us to. We love because Jesus loved us. There's a huge difference there. Follow the leader. In a small group Bible study I was part of last year, I was introduced to a game-changing question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? The question basically takes Jesus' command, love one another as I've loved you, and flips it on its head. We just said the basis for Christian behavior is the sacrificial love of Jesus. Asking this question has helped me determine when I remember to apply it. Remember, righteous, I'm not there yet. It helps me determine what sacrificial love looks like in any given situation. What does love require of me? This is a framework that is understandable, that's memorable, that we can get our head wrapped around, that we can actually do, and that'll take the guesswork out. What does love require of me? What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? What does love require of me? What does it look like to care for my children? What does love require of me? What's it look like to re-engage with my marriage? What does love require of me? What does it look like to have a tough conversation with somebody at work that really needs some truth? What does love require of me? The reason this is so powerful is because there are basically two categories of people that have influenced us and impacted our lives, your life, my life, profoundly. Two categories of people that have made you the father you are today. Two categories of people that have made you the wife you are today. Two categories of 
people that have made you the child you are today, because we've all got parents somewhere, two categories of people that have impacted your life profoundly. They've set you up to be successful or not so successful in your personal relationships, in your dating relationships, in looking for a spouse, in your work relationship, in every other relationship you've got. In other words, there's two categories of people that have set you up either to be very successful in your relationships or that have really set you up to fail and to struggle and to have to fight every step of the way. Here's the interesting thing. It's not about what they believe. You weren't set up based on what somebody believed. It wasn't because they were Christian. It wasn't because they went to church all the time. It wasn't because they knew their Bible backwards and forwards. Didn't matter if they were religious or not. The two categories of people that have had the most to do with who you are today are those people that have hurt you and those people that have loved you. The two categories of people in your life, in your history, in your story that have set you up for who you are today are those that have loved you and those that have hurt you. Those that have hurt you, those that have loved you. They either hurt you deeply or they loved you profoundly. Those people. Here's the crazy thing. Many of you, many of us, many people in our community, there are people that have been hurt by guys, girls who had really good theology, very accurate understanding of Jesus and God and the Bible, good theology. People who believed all the right things, people who showed up every Sunday, people who knew every chapter and every verse for every sin you ever committed, people who looked good on the outside. But behind the scenes were destroying you and just tearing the life out of you. Some of you have been hurt so deeply in your past that you'd say, my entire adult experience has been compensating, has been limping along, trying to make up for these things that have happened. Not because of someone's theology, not because someone was a Christian, not because they were good church people, but because I was hurt. There's pastors and priests and people in prison today that had impeccable theology, yet they hurt a kid. And that child grew up and has spent every moment of the rest of their life trying to manage and step through and get through. They're impacted by how that person treated them. On the other hand, some of you became adults and were set up for incredible, unbelievable success simply because of people who loved you, who poured into you, who made you special, who cared for you, who gave a darn for you. Maybe their theology wasn't all that sophisticated. Maybe they weren't really good about going to church regularly. Maybe they didn't know their Bible from where it sat on the coffee table. But they loved you, and they loved you deeply. And when you tell your story, their name always comes up. When you tell your story, when you relate your story to somebody else, that's the person, whether they loved you deeply or hurt you profoundly, their name comes up. And maybe you never express it. Maybe you never tell that part of your story. But it's there. It's there in your mind. 
because they hurt me or because they loved me. The way you have been treated has more to do with who you are than what you believe. The way you've been treated has more to do with who you are than what you believe. What you believe, is it important? Sure. The way you've been treated in your past has more to do with who you are. That's why what Jesus has said is so profound. And this is why those of us who are Jesus followers, we've got to get this. We've got to understand this. This is the only thing that matters. Not what we believe, but how we behave. This is Jesus' new commandment. What does righteousness require? What does love require? What's it going to take? What's it require of me? This is righteousness. Jesus never said, this is how all men will know you, you're my disciples, because of what you believe. He said, because of how you love others. Now, you got to understand, what does love require of me? It's not a one-size-fits-all formula. It's not that you can do it once and then repeat that, duplicate that over and over again, because every person you come into contact with is different. Everybody's got a different story. Everybody needs to be met at the place they're at. Jesus did that all the time. That's why he, why he said to one rich guy, oh, you got to sell everything if you're going to go to heaven. And the other rich guy, he said, well, you're kind of close, actually. He met up with them exactly where they were at. Have you ever had someone that, ah, they're idiots. And then you hear their story, and all of a sudden your perspective on them changes, and you give them a little more grace, you give them a little more yard, because, wow, it's amazing that they've been through this much and gotten to this point in their life. Jesus did that every time he met with a person. We don't have his inside knowledge, but we can ask questions. And we can give people extra grace and say, okay, okay, what does love require of me? Am I really good at this? No. I'm preparing this all week, and last night at the pizza, <laughs> Domino's. Yeah, I was grumpy because my pizzas weren't ready when they said they would be ready. It's on the app, people. Yeah, we don't really follow the app. Okay, can I talk to the manager in charge? Yeah, no really. And I'm driving home thinking, <laughs> Steve, you suck. I kid you not, because I am really in the same place of, man, I wish I was better at this. If you'd like to see someone changed, if you'd like to influence someone's future, you basically have two options. Hurt them deeply or love them profoundly. Hurt them deeply, love them profoundly. It's not what you believe, it's how you treat them. This is why Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by how you treat them, by how you love one another in the same way that I loved you. Today the goal has been to lay out a framework for righteousness, something that's simple, that's memorable, that takes the guesswork out. First thing we had to wrap our heads around was the fact that Jesus came to earth to establish a new covenant, a new movement, a new command. His new covenant fulfilled and replaced all the stuff that had come before. The new movement, that's us. It's international, no boundaries, a people, not a place. His new command would serve as the moral standard of righteousness. 
for members of his new movement. They all work together. None of them works as well on its own. Together they can be distilled down to a one-question framework for righteousness. What does love require of me? As we wrap up, I want to do one more thing. I want to give you some handles, three handles, for this framework because it is simple, but it's all-encompassing. Because it isn't complicated, but it's so much more demanding. Because we've all got to start somewhere, even me with the pizza joint. And we'll probably screw it up, like me with the pizza joint. And we'll take another step. We can all get better. Here's three handles to help you wrap your mind around the question. What does love require of me? One, don't do anything that will hurt you. Two, don't do anything that will hurt someone else. Three, don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of you? Love requires that you don't do anything that will hurt you. Because your heavenly father loves you. He loves you. And there are people in your life that love you. And anything you do to hurt you hurts him. And it hurts the people around you. My kids can't hurt themselves without hurting me. My kids can't make a stupid decision without, and they do. And, oh, you only know the two that are here. We got a grip of kids. And it hurts me. Because I love them. Love requires you never make a moral decision, a sexual decision, an ethical decision, a relational decision, a professional decision that's going to hurt you. Because when you hurt you, you hurt the one who loves you, and you hurt the ones who love you. Just between you and you? Oh, no, 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 no. It's just between me and me. No, 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 no. Nothing you do is just between you and you, because it's not just your life. It's not just your relationship. It's not just your profession. It's not just your, your reputation. There are people who love you, and it impacts them. Love requires that you take care of yourself because God loves you. What does love require of you? Love requires that you don't do anything that will hurt someone else. Because every person you have ever come into contact with is loved by God. It's someone that God sent his son to die for. Everyone you ever interact with is someone that God loves just as much as he loves you. That includes the people who've hurt you the most. Now, let's be careful because this gets tricky. Okay? And, and we'll, we'll admit that because that kind of stuff involves confrontation and confession and, and it's hurt, it's painful. But sometimes the way you need to love someone is by being completely honest with them. And sometimes it's like taking out a scalpel but it's never like taking out a knife. What does love require of me? That I will never... That I'll use that question so that I never hurt, betray, deceive, groom, tempt, abuse, hurt another person. What does love require of me? 
Last, what does love require of you? Love requires that you don't get mastered by anything. Whenever you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone else. Nobody should have to compete with your alcohol, your porn, your drug addiction, even if it's prescription drugs, your anger, your arrogance and pride. No one should have to compete with your temper. No one should have to compete with anything that masters you. Again, I'm not there. I've got a foul temper. But we can all take a step. Nobody should, nobody should have to compete with anything that masters me, that masters you, because only God should be our master. Love requires that we get rid of anything in our lives that would compete with God's lordship of our lives. Love requires of me that I get rid of anything in my life that would compete for God's lordship of my life. Because you can't love as long as you're being mastered. You cannot love as long as you're being mastered. What does love require of you? Don't do anything that'll hurt you. Don't do anything that'll hurt someone else. Don't be mastered by anything. Instead, step into righteousness. Father, we thank you for this word. Thank you for how thoughtful and how, how clearly it was delivered. I thank you, Lord, for just the purity of it and just the Holy Spirit working through it. I pray, Lord God, as we come into the season of worship and, and prayer, that you would, you would help us 